this is the last thing I will say about my Linux setup and uh, how it interacts with Windows. I promise. <laughs> it's for sure. I, it's <laughs> I promise, really. Um, because I I uh, I think it was last week. I finally managed to uh, find uh, the EFI, the proper. No, I didn't. Okay, let let me take <laughs> take this from the beginning. This whole problem started when I installed Nexus on my computer and I messed up the mounting of the EFI partition. So I just deleted the contents of it. Perfect. So that's kind of embarrassing and unfortunate. Uh, and then it took about five minutes more and I had a working Linux setup again. So I could start my Arch partition and my Nexus partition and everything was fine there. But I couldn't start my Windows 8.1 partition where all the games are. Uh, so Hold on. Windows 8.1? Yeah. Of all things. Because, because I ins <laughs> this computer is from 2013. Okay. Windows 8.1 was the latest version of Windows back <laughs> back then, <laughs> almost 10 years ago. But I think both 9 and 10 were... Well, they skipped 9, right? They skipped 9. And 10 was a straight free upgrade at the time. Yeah, but wasn't it worse? Not compared to Windows 8, no. Oh, cool. Okay, <laughs> so... I mean, it did have some trouble for some people, but oh dear, uh, I would. I'm so much happier with Windows 10 than I was with, let's see, eight. Seven was fine. I stayed with seven a, yeah, a good long time, and then I went straight to ten. Seven was one of the really good ones, like XP. Yeah, I think ten is ten is probably one of those as well. So this means that I need to install Windows 10, and I will probably mess something up. And then this this will continue. <laughs> you said it was over. I didn't. Yeah, I hoped it was over. Okay, maybe it wasn't over. Anyway, uh, so I couldn't play computer games for, for a couple of months. I might have been, been out and about during those times too, so I didn't have the computer anyway. Uh, this made me super efficient and sad. Oh, we can't have that. Indeed. Uh, so... I finally figured out how to burn a Windows 8.1 ISO to an USB uh, stick memory thing. And there's a tool I've forgotten the name of, and that's bad, because it's a very nifty tool. It's one of those you, you put it on a USB memory, uh, and then it, you just put ISOs ISO files on it, and it manages to start them. Hmm. Very neat. So you can have multiple different ones? Yep. Or one? Okay. And so I used that one, started the Windows 8.1 uh, boot or installation medium, and then I mounted the EFI partition by selecting disks and giving them letters, very DOS style. And then... I managed to recreate the BCD, which is some kind of database that Windows thinks is important, and to recreate or put the EFI file in the right location. 
and then I rebooted everything into Nixus again, mounted the EFI partition as you should, and then I reran the whole build everything command, and then it worked. Hmm. Cool, eh? So now you can play games in Windows 8.1 again? Yep. Now I'm playing uh, Oxygen Not Included and uh, RimWorld and Factorio, and I'm not sleeping at all. This is great. There's some upside there. Games are fun. Yeah. I actually want to try try Plasma. So I am signed up for ordering a Steam Deck. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been curious about Plasma. Arguably, I should be able to play plenty of games on my on my workstation that I run Linux on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a... It's, incredibly overspect for what i use it for but i don't have any time to play games while i'm at work essentially i've been thinking about doing factorio as a team building exercise though because i think it's a very very good place to learn about how computers fail by having huge bugs eating them Uh, so sometimes things fail in factorio due to small bugs like you stacking something that you don't actually consume onto uh, onto one of your uh, it's not an escalator oh one of those um, band thingies yeah so sometimes you build up things that you won't be consuming and then that causes a stop which can absolutely happen if you have for example workers that try to consume a message and then if they fail in a certain way they put it back yep that's essentially the same thing or but more like how computer systems tend to be just a series of cues ah so yeah and some of them are can only be a certain size and some of them can grow very very long but at a certain point it causes trouble and it shows you things about sort of throughput and parallelization and <laughs> scaling that are pretty hard to teach i think in typical systems without having a big fat production system that you can uh, that you can let people play with yep but i find a lot of intuitive overlap between my experiences with factorio and my experiences trying to optimize like a microservice architecture Hmm. yeah so and also team building exercise uh it it's also very much like a software project in that you want to be able to divvy things up and communicate over sort of interfaces it's like okay just give me coal on this on this band i don't really care how it happens i just want coal in and i'll give you steel out okay yep and you over there build some build some research uh you have this pipeline here you can grab any resources you want off of that but don't disrupt the flow <laughs> and okay you over there protect us from aliens build a defense system uh let us know if you need anything <laughs> uh so the more people you need to coordinate suddenly it's like oh can you do things can you just do the same thing with multiple people or do you divide it by task Ah, there's a lot of a lot of sort of collaboration and team stuff there and it feels very similar in many ways to to software development especially the aliens part absolutely uh have you seen Bartosz Milewski's okay I'll try pronouncing that name once 
<laughs> once more, Bartosz Milewski. That's a legit uh, Swedish pronunciation, at least. Um, have you seen his uh, article on Factorio as category theory? Or maybe category theory as Factorio? I think I saw the title and then I realized I don't really care about category theory, I don't think. So I skipped it. You need to start caring about <laughs> category theory. Is this Lambda Calculus all over again? Nah, it isn't. It's it's much more abstract. Uh, you can can uh, model the whole Yay. world. <laughs> I love more abstract. Yeah, of course. Uh, so uh, I'll send you the link. It has pretty pictures, and that's the important part. Okay. Yes. So uh, uh, the the Linux saga, Linux on the desktop, is uh, <laughs> it's either over or continuous. Yeah, it's the law of excluded middle. I think it will continue, yeah. uh, and eventually I'll buy another computer or a new computer because this one is soon 10 years old, uh, and uh, then I'll need to have some kind of dual boot on that one, or, and this is becoming more and more interesting, is to have two computers, one to run Linux on and one to run Windows on, and just stack them. Or, you could try the thing where you buy a Steam Deck and then dock it if you want to play desktop games. That sounds interesting. I mean, you could put Windows on it, but why would you? <laughs> if I can avoid the Windows, that's good. Hmm. There are many alternatives. Um, we'll probably talk more about this. Yeah. I can feel it in my bones. In the bones. Yes. So, as you might know, I've been thinking a fair bit about, or I've been dealing with in different ways, a fair bit of um, sort of recruiting and hiring. And I know, I know you've been been thinking about and dealing with a bit of that yourself, here and there. Yeah. So something I've been doing very recently, uh, that's a bit of an experiment in. And sort of supporting my my efforts with making videos and the newsletter and the blog posts and the general the general public production that I try to do in the Elixir community podcast as well. One of those efforts. So I don't really think the Elixir community is necessarily large enough to sustain uh, content developers or content creators in itself or not as sort of patreons or github sponsors i think that's it's a little bit small for that still it's growing so it might get there but i think that's more achievable in larger contexts like oh i'm in react or i'm in javascript or i'm in python so something i did was sort of follow the money and think about what are people actually willing to pay for? Where's where's where can you find significant money in the Elixir space? And people are really, really working hard to find developers. And this isn't just true for Elixir. This is true everywhere. But I know Elixir and I know the Elixir space. So I started an experiment, which is, can I help companies reach the Elixir 
community and ecosystem by way of a sponsorship deal where they support my content efforts and I help them become visible to the community first and secondly I help them actually do some recruiting which typically means people can apply for opportunities that are presented on the underdue.io site and like there's a jobs item in the menu now and people can apply and then I'll have a conversation with those people and if I think they're a good fit for the the opportunities they are interested in I pass them along and like I, I for this I sort of charge a, an ongoing fee for the marketing aspect of it and I I also charge a finder's fee for successfully recruited candidates, which is sort of standard for uh, for the recruiting business. And this has made it very clear to me how little I envy the non-technical tech recruiters. That must be such a hard job. What, what makes you say that? They need to find people that are probably pretty comfortable where they are and either try to dislodge them or find developers that have proven experience and that somehow don't have a compelling job right now and like that's the source of all this really bad outreach that people see on linkedin and like sort of spammy recruitment they're hoping to find the needle in a haystack. They're going. They're they're doing the numbers game, and you can do do it differently and do a sort of qualities and networking game, which is sort of what I'm, what I'm doing. But for me, this is a fair bit easier, I would say, because I can talk to another developer as a developer, and there's a lot of more, both trust there. I have much more understanding. I have much more context. I know this niche I'm focusing on, so it's really not your typical recruitment conversation it's not your tip i'm not your typical recruiter and i don't know how i would do it if i didn't know the tech already if i couldn't have a sort of peer conversation with people and one interesting thing has been that the candidates i've had from this because i've already passed on some candidates to one of my my clients have been people, or the majority of them, have been people that aren't actively looking, that aren't sort of on the open market looking at every opportunity and applying to tons, but rather people that are like, oh, this actually looks pretty great. I'll, I'm not entirely comfortable where I am, or I've been considering whether I should make a move. And they've decided like, oh, this, this is where I take that step. And I've been thrilled about that because there's a lot of developers that essentially never touch what I call the open market. They just get jobs by connections, references, networks. That's how I've gotten all my jobs, essentially. A, a, few, a few consulting clients have come through, uh, recru- uh, recruiters and, and sort of uh, no, facilitators, brokers. But I think that's... I think that's sort of a, an unusual thing, being able to reach developers in that way. It's quite unique. You've yeah. found a very interesting niche there. 
Yeah, I'm super curious to see if it pans out sort of in the long term. Yeah. Uh, in the in the short term, like I feel like I've definitely fulfilled my my duty so far to the clients and been able to offer some very interesting developers some good opportunities that I actually believe in. And I'm curious to see how much how much sort of further this can go. Now, I've also been talking to and I'm like a ton of developers that so when you do things like blogging and newsletters and you're very open about this is my email and reach out if you have any questions or thoughts which is sort of added to all of my blog posts and newsletter letters this means that I have conversations over email with an unusual number of developers that I don't already know so when I was working at a company I typically spoke to developers that I worked with on the day-to-day but now I talk to a lot of sort of assorted developers at different stages in in their journeys and the sort of common breakdown when it comes to finding work seems to be it's either near impossible to get a chance if you're inexperienced or you're in a in a sort of tricky country or it's really fairly easy and straightforward as long as you can stomach sort of the process and negotiating and and all of that and for for those slightly more experienced developers they have they're sort of spoiled for choice and that means they're getting particular about the companies that they want to work for and they're getting particular about wanting to do something specific like maybe they maybe they care about the environment, maybe they care about having dealing with fancy new tech, or maybe they care about work-life balance. Whatever sort of change they want to see, that's typically a strong driver for for what they're looking for in a workplace. And things like whether a company supports their favored tech. That, that's sort of one deal with the sponsorship. I mean, some of the companies in the, the Elixir space are very well known because they've been sponsoring every conference since its inception, essentially. And having a little bit of a brand name that people have seen before in a niche space like this is super, super useful, I think. Because people want to know that a company is willing to put sort of their money where their mouth is or money where their tech stack is so it's either so that's one way of reaching i think developers but another and others are sort of having compelling values like oh where where like your actually your your job is currently one of my clients as well yeah that makes everything so much messier (laughs) (laughs) i'm not concerned um <laughs> no because they are they are really straightforward and good people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and if you if you actually read so if you read my posting on that I've been very clear that like this has been a bit of a journey like my history with this client and the only reason why we have a good working relationship is because they are actually solid people good and transparent. So like we we 
hit the pandemic together and then I had to bail and they had a really rough spot and now they've worked hard to get through it. But the way I would pitch your, your job is like, if you want to deal with a crappy startup, you want to be a big cog in this small machine. You want to your work to matter and sort of your input into the process to matter. And you want, all the experience that a startup journey can give you for something that's sort of trying to stick to good values as well because there's an environmental angle there's there's a there's a sort of social good angle even though it's a business it definitely has its selling point is not dumping <laughs> is not dumping a bunch of kick bikes all across the city but rather doing in-city transportation in a new way that's actually ideally good. Absolutely. And sustainable for all parties involved. It should should be sustainable for the drivers. It should be sustainable for the ones who need to move themselves or their stuff and so on. And it should be sustainable for us too because ideally. otherwise we, <laughs> we can't keep doing that. Yeah. So... I mean, that's a compelling pitch for some people, but it's like, oh, scrappy startup. If what you're looking for is perfect work-life balance, that's a poor place to be. If what you're looking for is stability and tons of colleagues, I actually spoke to a developer recently. It was like, I don't really care what I do technically, but I want like 200 colleagues. <laughs> wow. And that, that's unusual, but yeah. but yeah, it happens. Cool. That's been sort of my my view on on recruitment i think a lot of companies aren't really putting a lot of effort into showing developers what they are about but many of the most most sort of influential companies are quite keen to show show that they support show that they are active show that they are engaged but many companies need to focus sort of their marketing efforts on actually acquiring customers but it turns out that finding developers is difficult and something to plan for, I think. And I, that's sort of where I, where I hope to fit in in a good way. I, I love having conversations with developers, so it suits me fine. How's your experience been with hiring and recruiting in recent years? I've been working just for a, for a few years, or that's... Uh... Well, <laughs> first I worked, then I studied for a very long time and did some uh, consulting on the side. And then I started working full time after the... I Just about when the pandemic hit, I got my first real job, in quotes. But while I studied, I was one of those who received emails from, from recruit, recruiters, uh, those spammy emails where they were like, you probably know Java. And I was like, well, sure. Do you want to give me some coffee and talk about this amazing client of yours? Uh, and they usually did. Uh, so I have talked to quite a few recruiters that didn't really read my LinkedIn page. Um, <laughs> because you like coffee. Yeah, and I like talking about about... I like to put myself in the interview situation because it's good to get get those interview muscles uh, <laughs> f- 
flexed or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's good exercise. I I think yeah. you're unusual in that you intentionally put yourself in that. I've definitely done it when I was at a job and was considering whether I had options. Yep. And then I took some interviews, and that felt good. And I'll I'll say this for for any developer, like much like you're not negotiating unless you're willing to walk away. So if you're willing to say no, you have the uh, possibility of negotiating something. If you're not really willing to to leave a job, it's very hard to negotiate a salary bump, for example, because you're not really, really putting anything else on the line. If it's just like, oh, but I, I'll be pissed off. Okay, sure. But are you going to leave? <laughs> but... Similarly to being able to to only really negotiate if you're willing to say no or walk away from a, something. When you don't need a thing, that takes a lot of stress out of a sort of interview situation. Because that essentially boils it down to, well, they have to make an impression. <laughs> oh, yes. And like then you can have a nice conversation with the recruiter and try to figure out if this seems interesting. And if it does seem interesting, then you can have a conversation with the company and see if they actually seem interesting and make a good impression. And I've definitely had those conversations where it all ended up like, okay, if I was looking to actively leave my job, this would be a fantastic place to go. This seems great. But I wasn't looking... I wasn't sufficiently looking to leave. So that company I talked to was essentially seemed at the same level. I would say it was seemed just as good as the company I was at. And then the switching cost wasn't worth it, essentially. I I didn't want to leave specifically, but if they had been so much better than the place I was, maybe, sure. And that's a pretty relaxed way of interviewing. Yeah. And then, well, then the question is, should I really, should I really take them up on this offer? Could I, then you could try to find all the reasons for why you should stay, which is an interesting mental exercise. Or maybe not as interesting as getting all the reasons for why you should change job, of course. Yeah. The brain has a tendency to go go a bit boring when when it's on the negative side. Yeah. Anyway, free coffee is a good thing. So free coffee, but did you never try to leverage it into sort of oh yeah, sure. Uh buy me lunch at this place and we'll talk. I was too stupid. <laughs> you probably could have done it. Yeah, I, I should have done that. Um because I was a poor student, so so my time was if I could could trade my time for a good lunch, of course. And it was also very interesting to see what do all these companies do, in in what niche are they, uh, in what vertical are they doing their stuff, and how do they earn their money. So that was kind of cool. Uh, and then I started working at a consultancy, and. Then I did, for every new assignment, 
uh, or client, I did an interview. But there it felt more like, of course, I should be be at my best because uh, otherwise uh, my boss at the consultancy and so on will be disappointed that I'm just costing money and not bringing in any money. I think that was wrong, <laughs> but <laughs> that was what I thought at the time. And that kind of worked out. So uh, even though some of the clients were interesting, you could say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and now at my job, we're hiring. And so I'm on the other side of the wall or fence or the... There should be an idiomatic way to say that. Um, that's not Swedish. And I find that interesting too and even harder. Because then I need to... to judge if the person I'm talking to could be able to do the job we're trying to uh, find a person for uh, and also if they are at least slightly communi communicative and so on yeah it's not just do they have the technical skills but can can we actually work with this person yeah and that's a very interesting part too, because many things can be replaced with being a really nice person. Yeah. But what if the person is only really nice and doesn't have the technical skills? That's one of the fears. Yeah. So the entire technical team at your current job was essentially placed by me. <laughs> yep. Uh, Absolutely. So <laughs> I put you in touch with this company and I put the the other guy that works there in touch with the company and he didn't do elixir at the time he'd been st stuck and was sort of sick of i think uh, the particular niche of php had been doing he'd been at a company for a fairly long time uh, and he was he was looking for a change i think he wanted to to sort of work on a product that seemed like his kind of jam and i thought this company would like this person i know he's interested in making a move I know that they are interested in, in finding a developer because they needed one. And I made the connection and was like, okay, yeah, let's let's be very clear. He doesn't do Elixir yet. <laughs> but I think he would be a good fit. I know he's a good person. I know he's easy to work with, easy to talk to, and very sort of fastidious about doing a good job. And seems to have worked out everyone seems happy <laughs> yep yeah i think so yeah he's he's an absolute joy to work with also i didn't know elixir when i started there so uh, of course you did we we've done several videos on me teaching you elixir yeah of course the basics the basics i was an ace at the basic basics of elixir i was so good uh, but above the basics, never seen it. So yeah, <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah, you had mu much more functional programming experience than he did, though. Yeah, absolutely. Done way too much Haskell. But that's, yeah, that's interesting. And I really enjoy connecting people together in this manner. And that's that's a nice part about doing all this publishing stuff that I get to 
I get to build network and more connections out into the world. And then when I need, when I talk to a client of mine and they need to make some stuff happen, I'm like, yeah, you should probably talk to this one or you should talk to that one. Oh, you need someone with DevOps experience? Well, here's a freelancer I know who's entirely too nerdy about DevOps. He's the one I ask when I have uh, sort of DevOps thoughts. When I when I get hit by a brainwave about DevOps, I, I bounce it off of him. So talk to him. And people really appreciate getting these kinds of connections because if they've already established a sort of base level of trust and respect for me and my skills, which is usually where it starts, then anyone I reference or anyone I recommend is essentially better than what they could find blind by just reaching out to someone or at least more comfortable. It's like, oh, at least there's a, there's a connection there. And if they have a really poor experience, they might tell me, ah, that didn't, that didn't really work out. And that would mean something. So just having sort of that social human connection. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's sort of bootstrapping the trust. And I, I really like just gathering, gathering people and relationships that not because I can leverage it for business, because most of the time I reference people without any, any kind of compensation. But it also means that like my consulting services that I offer are more valuable partially because I can pull together a bunch of assorted experts at a fairly short notice if a company really needs it. Or, and I, I know a variety of things. I know a variety of people. Like I did, I did consulting for, for your job. Yep. But then uh, they needed a new developer as the previous one left. And they really needed more than one, but uh, they start they started with one because it's harder to start with two. So I was like, oh, I think I know someone who could who could do the job. And rather than having to go and interview a bunch of people and try to find a bunch of people, I'm I'm sure they looked around as well. But with a strong recommendation from someone who's who they feel have done a good job, I mean that that's much. That saves a lot of time. It saves a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of wondering whether this would work, typically. Yeah. Because hiring is fraught. Like, no one no one wants to hire someone and then find out, oh, crap, we need to fire this person, or rather, this, this is not going to work out. That sucks for everyone involved. <laughs> sucks so bad. It does indeed. Yeah, it's so bad. It's it it would somehow be nice to have some kind of of um, I don't know tryouts that was, that's not the right word but in the hiring process to have something to just try everything <laughs> see if it's a good fit see if everyone is happy but it's also if if you say to someone well we're we're just gonna gonna see if this could work for two weeks is everyone gonna do their best then i don't know yeah i mean it's like hiring itself is very tricky especially 
the interview process and on, um, there's a reason a lot of companies like to hire based on relationships or based on, or sort of try to level up someone internally. Like, oh, you know a bit of programming and can do this and that. Oh, but we know that, we know how to work with you. So let's let's bring you up or let's try that. But also when, just when hiring, trying to verify skill, super tricky. I, I listened to a good uh, changelog episode of the podcast where they talked about, what are they called? So work sample tests, essentially, where okay, rather than sort of brain teaser puzzles or whiteboard coding or whatever, this person advocated for doing tests either where you sit down together and do the thing, but more typically, like, okay, here's your test. Uh, this is what we want done to this repo and um, we expect this to be like a three-hour effort and sort of giving it that scope it's not a massive scope but like there there are a ton of jobs where you need to to some extent prove that you're capable and I think that's a fair test in that it removes the whole interview situation and it's pretty close to the normal job and it, even if you sort of fail the test, the conversation can be useful around it. So you could still get a job even if you don't understand exactly the requirements you were given and try to do something and or f- attempt something and fail because you can have a good conversation and figure out, oh, this person is easy to work with on these things. So I think... I think those work sample tests are probably the preferred way to check coding skills. And I'm considering whether I should develop one for Elixir just so I have something for for those candidates where I can't essentially either assume the skill or infer the skill or have a reference that tells me, well, I vouch for this person. Because there's a number of reasons why I might not ever test someone's coding skill because it doesn't feel necessary in certain certain circumstances but to some people it would be fair like if i feel like this person maybe doesn't know what know this tech well enough for this particular position or whatever giving them a test where they can actually prove me wrong is good like that that increases the chance of of me hiring someone that might not like interview well. And I, I think that's something to the like testing people is not my favorite thing. I I don't like a pass fail sort of deal. But having having some kind of trial is good or sometimes necessary. Like if you're hiring a ton of people you probably want to verify that, okay, they they know how to code. Thankfully, I don't, like with, with the kind of stuff I do, I don't typically, I haven't gotten a single application that I felt was unlikely to be able to code. Uh, it's not like I get 200 applicants that I need to scour through. At that point, I need to start sort of trimming at the cv level and stuff that's that's a later problem 
but I've also heard uh, hiring managers, not for not for tech specifically, but like, oh, we open up applications for this position, and then there's they have a stack of four hundred applica- applications on the desk, and it's like, okay, let's pick up the top half, dump it in the trash. Okay, these first two hundred, they were unlucky, and we don't want unlucky people at this company. Yeah, that's yeah, it's on the one hand. It's kind of a shitty thing to do. Yep. On the other hand, yeah. It's like... Uh, <laughs> maybe you need yeah. to. <laughs> uh, I mean, at a certain scale, maybe. Uh, yeah. Or you can do some kind of preliminary screen, like have, have people at least look through them and see see that they included everything that's expected or that something is not clearly uh, spam. But yep. I have some sympathy with people that try to handle like 400 applicants. I, I would want to do that. But yeah. So I get why people need to do, need to test candidates. That's, that's reasonable. Like you want to remove risk on both ends because it's, yep. it can turn into a very shitty experience if you fail. But I also think you should, this is process again. Like you need to keep the number of tests, interviews, reviews, conversations to the right number. <laughs> and what exactly what that is depends on what you're doing and how you want to do it and what company you want to be. But if you have many, many rounds of interviews, that's going to have consequences for your hiring, both in, oh, maybe everyone's super verified, but maybe you also lose a ton of candidates that just can't be bothered or hate uh, the interview situation and you having seven of them uh, might feel a bit heavy it's like it's not worth the anguish okay i guess i'll apply somewhere else yeah i I think it's one of those you need a process to control your processes (laughs) (laughs) ah the infamous meta process and also, maybe the tests should somehow reflect what the work is about. I'm, for some reason, I love whiteboard coding, but you'll never see me whiteboard code Java yeah. or C++ or something. I will whiteboard code in Haskell. So, so that will probably limit the number of companies that will think I'm a good fit, I'm a good candidate. But also, it's the other way around too. So, but I've never whiteboard coded on an interview. Me neither. And I suppose that's good. Uh, I don't think I've ever. I don't know if I've ever done anything to prove that I actually know how to. Code yeah, same. In an so interview situation. I've been tested once. Uh, okay. That was what happened. A client that didn't know me from before. Yep. Uh, and I went through a sort of recruiter broker person yep and we had had a a lovely conversation about sort of architecture and technical direction of the company and what they were trying to do and what i think i could provide and yeah it was a very nice conversation and everything felt good and they seemed confident they wanted to bring me on board and then he brought out a fizz bus oh that's so good Uh, I was like, (laughs) okay, yeah, I guess I'll roll with this. Uh, This was also when I was just starting up my consulting. So I was keen on on getting the job. And 
so I did the fist buzz and I failed it because I didn't read. I forgot the some of the instructions, so my fist buzz didn't do do the right output. It's surprisingly tricky. I, I did it in pseudo code as well, so yeah, or rather I did it in pseudo Python, I guess. And same thing. But uh, we had a good conversation about what I missed and why, and I even uh, think I sort of spun it into and yeah, this this roughly reflects how I am as a developer. I'm not the I'm not the most uh, detail oriented. <laughs> big picture kind of person sometimes but so like it, it was a good conversation and it i didn't really stop and pause when i got the fist bus, but afterwards i was slightly insulted i was like really this didn't feel right and that that's a little bit silly of me but it's also something to be aware of like if you depending on your candidate what you spring on them and like if whether you communicate that there's going to be a test that's probably the most important part if someone said there will be a slight a small coding test then i would have probably been less surprised and wouldn't have been feasibly insulted i would probably just have been relieved that it was that (laughs) but overall like I get the need for for removing potentially really, really low-level candidates, but you can also remove some really high-quality candidates if you actually, if they're a little bit picky, <laughs> and yeah, and you sort of target the wrong target them with the wrong test. And you had been talking about architecture and programming and and. Like the big picture big stuff. Big picture stuff, some detail stuff. Like they were do- using Drupal yeah. in parts of their product. And I've done a ton of du- Drupal work in the past. Yep. So we talked about that. And and they wouldn't hire you per se. You would be a contractor. Yeah, yeah. I would be easy to fire if they wanted to. But yeah, so, so they could have just said, we'll try you for a day. And if that doesn't work out... Oh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they had to sign up for at least a month, I think. Oh, okay, fair enough. Yeah. Oh well. Yeah, and it's like they weren't terrible about it. It's not like they did a crime on me as a developer. It's like it's just me being a little bit of a a fancy boy. And but I I brought it up with a, another freelance, and it was like, oh, I would have been so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just when there's a large difference in expectation. Like, which conversation are we having? Absolutely. And I wouldn't have been insulted if they said, "Okay, this is some coding homework." I would have potentially been a little bit put off by having to do it. Like, I don't really wanna. Mm -hmm. But I think I would have respected more, and it would have been more fun. Yeah. Rather a three-hour coding session than a fifteen like a five to 15 minute fizz buzz which mostly felt slightly insulting absolutely and weird like that so i don't recommend fizz buzz i guess as the takeaway yeah unless you have two thousand applicants for a very sort of junior position and you just want to filter out people that can't actually program and then i would make up a new fizz buzz because fizz buzz is too well known but it seems to work still but but does it well, it worked 10 years ago. Someone said that it worked 10 years <laughs> ago. That's a very good point. 
I don't know that there's been much testing of sort of whether it actually helps. I wonder if there are some some scientific studies on good <laughs> ways to see if someone actually can program. It's like we want the central statistics agency to to just send out when so my wife does this uh, these uh, statistical things where where she answers a bunch of questions and we they should really just send out like, a test whether see see if people can do can solve fizzbuzz without targeting for developers specifically so ideally they would see an overlap between people that are employed as software developers <laughs> or trained as uh, educated as software developers and the people that can correctly solve the fizzbuzz this sounds like madness i'm all for it <laughs> it's gonna be like a very very small percent of respondents that actually answered the yeah. best part is going to be the people who have to do the processing of the responses just yeah have to check all the fizz buzzes like was this even close <laughs> <laughs> did they write any code did they write i don't understand this question <laughs> and the dude who writes below you'll see the answer written in white space have a nice day so what would you do as a hiring process, what does the the ekrut hiring process look like? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's. Can I get back to you in ten years? If I send you a candidate tomorrow, what they will they be subjected to? Dun dun dun! I will tell you what I tell all my clients. I have had a conversation with them. I think they are are an appropriate candidate these are my t my takeaways for this client uh, for this particular candidate uh, i have not tested whether they can actually code but i believe they can cool uh i think i would ask them for code samples if they have something they they would like to share uh, some programmers do not everyone does and uh, i would ask them about their their earlier experiences. I was going to say you'd ask them for their mother's maiden name. Yeah, that would be so cool. The name of their first pet, the street they grew up on. Absolutely, and and shoe size probably. And there are some more questions that are really good if you want to get their bank details. Um, also, one one. This is a. A tangent but one of the best things to have in a CV I didn't realize this until very recently is a photo of yourself and that photo needs to be to look like you do now so you can't have a very fancy photo where you like made your hair in some extra fancy way so you're not recognizable because that photo will be used to find you in a lobby somewhere <laughs> or yeah when the recruiter or me is going to talk to you uh, and since i'm i'm not very good with faces and so on that photo is important please please send a photo so i can identify you yeah yep 
picks or this won't happen. <laughs> Back to the the main question. I think I also would ask something like how they handle tricky situations. I don't know how to ask that in a good way anymore, but <laughs> the question as it stands is fantastic. How do you handle a tricky <laughs> situation? Yeah, so tell me about one of your uh, tell me about a tricky situation you've had on a job or at school or something and tell me how you handled it. So that's uh, actually a a decent question asking them to pull something. But yeah. I I really like it in, in the sense of just how do you handle tricky situations? As a question <laughs> totally in itself. Out of context. And then if they ask for clarification, yeah. it's like, okay, imagine you're in a situation and it's tricky. <laughs> how would you handle it? <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> Wait a minute, I'll I'll start the dramatic music. So that kind of questions, I suppose, open questions regarding their former work or school experience. And because everyone will try to answer, not everyone, <laughs> way too many will try to answer the questions in the right way to get the job uh, or to make the person asking them happy. Uh, and then there are grumpy people who will just do their thing. And that makes everything so much more fun. So the questions can't have a right answer. Yeah, um, that sounds similar to the types of conversations I like to have. Sort of, I've started to dial in, especially for slightly more experienced developers. It's like, okay, but what are your values? What are things you value? What are things you don't particularly value that other developers do? I like looking for sort of the negative space or the intentionally the things they ha they have intentionally chosen not to do. People are usually pretty so-so uh, at answering these things. But I, I ask the same questions of the companies that I that sponsor and that turn into my clients because I want to give a picture of the character of the company. I want to give a picture of the character of the candidate. And if I ask them for what they value, it's like, oh, I want clean code and I want maintainable code, but I also want to, I'm also very pragmatic. So it's like I make, I make the right trade-offs. I try to make the right trade-offs. And companies are like, yeah, we value people and we value quality and then we value maybe maybe teamwork or like there there's a lot of lofty nice things you can you can aspire to but what you don't aspire to is sort of more important because making a statement about what you're not if you can make that clearly and succinctly that tells me more typically than what values you hold and they really it really puts those values into contrast with something because every company could say, oh, we're really into sustainability. We're really into moving fast. We're really into being sort of lean and agile and we're really into structure and order and we're really into people and empathy and teamwork and craft and we 
like to put the customer first and we want a stress-free environment and we really care about work-life balance. Like all of these things, many of them are mutually exclusive or at least in heavy tension. So if you're saying you're all for all the things, you are not for any of them. Yep. So, yeah, a bit of negativity can go a long way. There's, there's. Uh, when I was on my last year at Chalmers, I interviewed at some consultancies because my plan was to start at a consultancy to have a good first salary so I could build on that when I later changed jobs. It kind of worked. And one places I one of the places I interviewed at, uh, I said I don't want to code in Java nor C sharp, because I don't think they are the answer to any questions, regardless of what the questions are. And uh, <laughs> we talked about uh, a lot of interesting things, and then they said. Uh, we can't have you as a consultant here because we only do Java and C Sharp. Uh, enjoy. Uh, <laughs> so maybe I dodged a bullet. I think I did. Yeah. It was interesting. Uh, so you have a couple of, of um, people working for you. Uh, did you do any kind of active recruitment or did they show up on your doorstep and wouldn't leave until until you taught them how to code in some kind of I don't know, cut out the kid way? Elixir kid. There's a Coming to theaters 2020. There's a bit of a mix. So a few of them have done internships with me and one has worked off and on with me for for some time. Another did so some developer assistant work is what I called it, where they they did so they supplemented their uh, study, their student loans with some income from from doing sort of internal undergraduate stuff with me. So three of them, three of the four, I've worked with to some extent before. And the first one I I got in touch with via my, one of my sisters. So I was like, yeah, our roommate is getting. Uh, like it's learning how to program can they do an internship with you when they when they need to uh sure i can handle that and then that intern turns out to be really good uh nice to work with really like them and then they referred a friend that needed to do an internship and so i took on that as well and that worked pretty well. And then they had another friend. <laughs> and uh, they were pretty brilliant. So he's not a super experienced developer, but happened to have a bunch of server experience, which is super useful. So <laughs> it's it's been a series of, of sort of networked events. And the fourth person is, is a bit of an unusual outlier in that they came from a different angle of my uh, personal and professional elixir network but they came recommended uh, as a person more than more than as a developer so also in, inexperienced and i just happened to have the opportunity where a client said all right uh, can we 
can we bring in some people and make this move faster? And so I pulled together a team to be able to do more things at once. And it's it's worked pretty well. Like uh, I always find the <laughs> wrangling multiple people is a bit of a challenge, but there was never never an interview situation. It was always like, okay. Actually, what I did when the probably the most important hiring thing I did because these are fairly junior developers is that rather than say these are or rather than judge them entirely on sort of oh how well can you perform the first thing i put in front of them is essentially a document that says these are my expectations i expect that you tell me if you're stuck i expect that you don't necessarily know the things you're that i'm going to require of you but that you're willing to put effort into learning them I expect you to have the basics of sort of programming skills and and things that come with your with your training but I don't expect you to know everything that you encounter I expect you to learn I expect you to to try your best to tackle these things and I expect you to tell me when things are too hard I expect you to tell me when things are not fun or if they are are too much like that kind of thing I set some clear expectations that made it also quite clear that they are expected to learn and evolve on the job. They are not expected to know everything coming in. And I think there's immense differences between how you need to work with inexperienced people and experienced people in software development because there's so much to learn initially. And it's it's a challenging journey even like i will say like my life was easier <laughs> when i was a solo uh, it, it's just straight easier but i also really like working with these folks and that's that's entirely due to what particular people they are the personalities involved and how they tackle this whole software adventure so yeah no interviewing lots of networking just personal relationships and networks that's that's what it's about for me so having a solid sister yeah yeah yeah. Uh, sisters are great bootstrapping for for this type of effort (laughs) yeah i like the expectations document yeah so did they and that's probably the important part good i wonder what some of those things should be very clear to an experienced developer but others are, some others are very good to just type out. So expectation setting in the beginning. Yeah, I think that's a fairly common thing that people don't do enough of. Yeah, because people work in very different ways. Some of are very självgående. That's, I should know what that's in. Self-motivated. Uh, while others prefer to work in groups in another way. Mm. Cool. Now we know everything about recruitment, I think. Probably. Uh, I I actually did sort of an interview thing on the blog with a tech recruiter once, just asking a little bit about sort of the poor reputation that they sometimes have for from the people that they 
they are trying to recruit and yeah. uh, some of that. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was that was an interesting exchange. And I, I try to build some relationships with actual recruiters as well because I find those those are more likely to have opportunities for inexperienced folks. And I want to help people get into programming because I think it can be quite life-changing for people to get like a programmer salary and a job that doesn't suck, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I want to help people in and I can't always do that myself. For one thing, there are things where I don't have a strong network. Like if, you're, if you've learned Java, of course there's jobs to get but the first step is still hard yeah and i'm not well suited to help with that but there are tons of recruiters who have people looking so there's more of a chance there i had a recruiter help one of my cousins find his first devops job and now he's been a devops specialist for a number of years so nice and good recruiter good recruiters are good it's worth that's just like if you run into a recruiter that you find does things in a reasonable way or seems to have a good instinct, I think it's worth keeping that relationship sort of alive at least or open. But yeah, tech recruitment, yep. it's a bit of a pain. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, one of the unsolved problems. Is it NP complete? Of course. <laughs>